Yeah, so I, like I said, I'm a member of Jefferson Park Baptist Church, and on behalf of the saints gathered there this morning, I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm personally excited and thankful for this opportunity to be able to open the Word of God with you this morning. Now, let me invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 in verses 17 through 19 is going to be our text for this morning. We're looking at one of my favorite descriptions of salvation, which is redemption. It's been said that if salvation is the general term for the whole saving work of God, then redemption is more specific, because redemption focuses on the price. Redemption is the price of salvation. So with that being said, why don't we begin our time by reading from God's word together. Let me Direct your attention to your Bibles and follow with me as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. God's word says this, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is the word of God. In 1827, John Barry Machem founded the oldest and most historic black church in the state of Missouri. He had started off as an educator, and he had circumvented laws against educating slaves and teaching them how to read by creating what he called the River School. It was a school that floated on the Mississippi River, and slaves would come on the school, and it would push off onto the river, and so he would say that he was educating them in Illinois, and then it would come back to shore. Slave owners even let their slaves attend the school, as many of them were eager to have their slaves learn to read. Well, this school soon became a church, and this church began attracting people from both sides of the river. And as the congregation grew, the giving also grew. And soon enough, the church started a process where they would take the offering and they would go back. And if if someone in the congregation had a family member who was still in slavery, they would go back and purchase their freedom. He wrote a book about this, John Barry Machen did. And in it, he describes his own story. He was born a slave here in Virginia, but was moved to Kentucky. As he grew up, his his owner actually allowed him to work as a carpenter and, and earn his own money, and, and soon enough, he had earned enough money to purchase his freedom. Upon being granted his freedom, he set foot back to Virginia to purchase the freedom of his father. He describes his experience in this way. Though I was 700 miles from him, I held conversation with him in my head, for he was very near to my heart. In a short time, I went to Virginia and bought my father and paid 100 pounds for him, Virginia money. It was a joyful meeting when we met together, for we had been apart a long time. The year was 1811. I was 21 years old. I walked with my papa 700 miles back to Hardin County, Kentucky, where the old man got to meet his wife and all of his children. They had not seen him in years. Oh, I cannot describe the joy at this reunion. This 21-year-old, in addition to redeeming his father's family, went to purchase 
the freedom of his wife and his own children. And after that, he worked for the rest of his life buying the freedom of over 20 slaves and changing their lives drastically. And I tell this story because it is this concept of redemption that is at the center of our text for this morning. At the heart of the passage that we just read in 1 Peter 1 is this word, redemption. Unfortunately, I think that it's a word that's sort of lost its meaning for us because it's become almost this Christianese kind of word. We like to just, you know, throw it around without really thinking about what it actually means. But understand that this word and the way Peter is using it, it's a marketplace word. And it's a slave marketplace word. It was a word in the Roman Empire that was used specifically for buying the freedom of prisoners or buying the freedom of slaves. And sometimes it's even translated to ransom. That's what my translation does. It says we've been ransomed. And this theme of redemption is exactly what Peter's getting at in this passage. In just these three verses, Peter is giving us such a beautiful picture to describe what God does for us in Christ. Uh, He redeems us. He ransoms us with the precious blood of Christ. It's an incredible reality. And yet, of course, at the same time, as Peter is describing this doctrine of redemption, and as he's adding in all of these finer details to, to fill in the picture, we'll see that he's actually doing this for a reason. And he's doing this primarily to compel us to action. You'll notice that the main verb of verse 17 And really, the main verb of this whole passage is it's actually a command. It's a command to conduct yourselves with fear. And it's a command that's grounded in the great reality of redemption. That's what the first word of verse 18 indicates, knowing. We could say that because you know you've been redeemed, you conduct yourself with fear. Knowing is the prerequisite, the the reason, the cause for our conduct. Because you know you do. So this morning I want to study 1 Peter 1 with you, and as we do, my hope is that we'll be able to, you know, add some color to our understanding of redemption, and that this would increase our appreciation for what God has done for us and help us live in light of it. So with that being said, I hope to be able to show you that understanding redemption produces the fear of the Lord. Understanding redemption leads to the fear of the Lord. And we'll see this through the lens of four investigative questions. What, how, who, and why. But before we dive in, I thought it'd be good for us to maybe get a a dictionary definition of the word redemption. Because I don't know about you, but this isn't really a word I use too often. The word redemption or ransom, it literally means to buy something back or regain possession. I mentioned before that in the context of the Roman Empire, redemption usually referred to the buying the freedom of a slave or a prisoner of war. And that's because these were people who were free, but then they would become captured and enslaved, and so they would have to buy back or regain their freedom. We in the 21st century in central Virginia, we we probably aren't too familiar with redemption in that context. But there's still some examples that I'm sure we can relate to. Last summer, I, uh, I let someone borrow my car, and they parked it in an illegal spot, and it ended up getting towed. Um, so it went to car jail, which means that if I wanted it back, I needed to go to the impound lot to pay some sort of fine so I could buy it back. 
I had to pay some sort of ransom to redeem it. Now, that's a much lighter use of the word redemption than what's in view of this text, but it's helpful because the key to understanding redemption here is that the car was already mine, and I had to pay to reclaim possession. If I were buying a new car, I couldn't say I was redeeming it because I never owned it. It was mine to begin with, and so redemption is me going there and buying it back. Now, what Peter is saying is that the same is true about our lives, right? From from Genesis 1, God created the world. He created the earth and the heavens, the land and the sea, the plants and the animals, and every human being. And so all of it, all of it belongs to God, right? Over and over and over, Scripture attests to this truth. We see in the Psalms, the earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And again, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. We see it again and again and again that everything belongs to God because everything was made by God. And that certainly includes us. And yet, Peter says in verse 18 that we've been ransomed, redeemed. Which means that at some point, even though we were free, even though we belonged to God, we became captured and enslaved. That's the implication of saying we've been ransomed, right? Because if we've been redeemed by God, then that means that at some point we were slaves that needed to be bought back and reclaimed by God. And that brings us to our first question, but from what? What enslaved us? What were we redeemed from? The simple Sunday school answer to that question is is sin. All throughout Scripture, and even perhaps in our own experiences, um, we, we can see that we were in bondage to sin. The language the Bible so often uses is that we were sold as slaves into sin. And that's exactly right. But I want you to notice how Peter describes that condition. Look at verse 18. He writes, knowing that you were ransomed from what? From the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. He describes the sinful life as the feudal life, which means that while we were in bondage to sin, before we were redeemed, every thought we had, every word we spoke, every action we did was entirely useless. It was all for nothing. That's what feudal means. Nothing we did amounted to anything. We couldn't accomplish the purpose for which we were created. It's kind of like this. When I was in high school, some friends and I, we decided that we wanted to take a trip to the Outer Banks. And once we got there, as we were unpacking all of our stuff, we we noticed that one of the tires on our car looked kind of flat. And so we finished taking everything out of the car, and then we got back in the car, and we took it to a gas station that was five, six miles away, and filled it with air. The whole ordeal took about 30 minutes, but once we got back to the house, the tire was deflated again. Now, imagine how pointless it would have been to drive all the way back to the gas station, fill it with air again, and then drive all the way back only to see the tire deflated again. We were there to to enjoy the beach and relax. How ridiculous would it have been to spend the whole trip just driving back and forth, filling up the bad tire only to have it deflate on the trip home? That's not what tires are made for. That would have been futile effort for a futile tire. 
Instead of letting that ruin our entire trip, we replaced the tire and we threw it away because it was useless to us. Because that's not what tires are for. Now we should ask the question, what are people for? People are not made to live for themselves. People are not made for their own temporary, fleeting pursuits and pleasures. They're not made for their jobs. They're not made for their wealth. They're not made for their popularity. The Bible tells us what people are for. The Bible tells us that God made you and me for His glory to know Him, to love Him, to delight in Him, to be infinitely satisfied in Him, and to, to have a place in His kingdom where your life is resounding to God's glory forever and ever and ever. That's what He made you for. But is that how we live? Peter says no. Ever since Genesis 3, because of the sin of our forefather Adam, sin entered into this world and infects every human heart. We inherited our sin and our futile ways from our forefather Adam, and ever since then, it's spread through every human being that's lived on this earth. From the moment you are born into this world, you live, a, you live a life neglecting the glory of God, loving yourself and not God, and pursuing after the things of this world, but not the creator of the world. Our hearts are hardwired from birth to reject God, and we instead follow after the course of the world. We live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we scoff at the goodness of God as we live for any other reason than for the glory of God. We live as if there is no God. And when that happens, your life, it loses its meaning and its purpose. That's what Peter means when he calls our ways and our lives futile. And the Bible tells us that for that kind of life, there will be no place for them in God's kingdom. There won't be a place for them because that's not what their life is for. You were made for the glory of God to know Him and enjoy Him. And so what does God do to those whose lives are useless in His kingdom? Those who are unable to live in any sort of meaningful way according to their purpose to know God and have a right relationship with Him. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Verse 17 says that the reality is there is a God. And this God will judge impartially. That's what verse 17 says. Not that God is considering, you know, maybe I'll bring everything under judgment, but he will with certainty and finality bring everyone under judgment according to their deeds. And so when he looks at a person and if he finds them to be useless, then just like the tire in my story, he throws them out. He casts them out. He condemns them to eternal wrath and punishment in hell because they can't do what they were made for. And so what Peter is saying is, if you're a Christian, that is exactly what you were ransomed from. Because that's how our lives were before we were ransomed. No matter what we did, we could only walk in futility because we were enslaved by it. If sin was a chain, then, then where it led, you followed, and you could not live for the purpose for which you were created. And so we needed to be freed. And that's exactly what God did. When you were worthless, when, when we had no redeeming qualities or value, in that moment, we were purchased and ransomed by God. And this brings me to our second question. 
So then how? How were we redeemed? If you look down at your Bibles at the second part of verse 18, how were we redeemed? Peter answers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. He, he starts with this negative statement to, to emphasize the cost. In the ancient Near East, silver and gold were considered to be the most valuable things that you could own. And that's not something that's lost in our culture. Even today, silver or gold and gold are considered to be the most precious metals in the world. And yet, Peter says that these things weren't used to ransom believers. In fact, they could not. Psalm 49.7 tells us that truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. It's too costly and can never suffice. There's a children's story that I think illustrates this pretty well. It tells of a, a frog that went to the store to buy a hat. And after hopping up and down the aisles, he, he found the hat that he liked, and he took it to the counter to pay for it. Well, the shopkeeper was human and only took money as, as payment. And that turned out to be a problem for the frog. You see, the frog had brought what was most valuable in his world as his currency, flies. One by one, he, he began pulling out these dead flies to offer to the shopkeeper, but the shopkeeper wouldn't accept it because they had no value to him. The hat was much more costly than that. And so it is with our own lives. As valuable as they are, money, silver, gold, they could never pay the price of redemption. And Peter tells us it's because those are perishable things. Our lives are not. The currency isn't even comparable. It's not even in the same category. Our lives are far more costly than that. So then how were we redeemed? Peter says in verse 18, with precious blood. We were redeemed with something far more precious than money or silver or gold. We were redeemed with blood, with precious blood. Now, that's an interesting phrase because I think when we hear redemption by blood, we often miss a lot of the baggage that goes along with it. Um, first of all, just so we're clear, blood, it refers to death, right? It, it's not talking about someone donating blood or getting a cut or a drop of blood. It refers to an actual sacrificial death. But more than that, this mention of redemption by blood is intended to draw connections to Passover. This language is supposed to take you all the way back to what we read in our scripture reading this morning. If you recall in the, uh, in, in the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel was enslaved by Egypt and God had redeemed Israel through the death of every firstborn child in the land. Right? So he gave special instruction to Israel that if they wanted to save their children, they needed to sacrifice a lamb without blemish or spot and use the blood of the lamb to, to paint their doorposts red so that as the angel of death passed through the land, he would see the, the doorpost covered in blood and he would pass over the house. The, life's, the lamb's life represented by its blood became the price or the ransom to purchase the life of the firstborn child. It was the life of the lamb for the life of the child. 
And so as Peter is referencing Passover and making us reflect on the cost of how much it costs to be redeemed from Egypt, then you have to wonder, how much more the price of redemption from sin? And yet, of course, we know now that the whole event of Passover was, was a hint. It was a foretaste pointing forward to a greater future reality of God redeeming his people from sin. Because no animal could truly satisfy God's demands that sin be punished. No animal could satisfy the demand for justice. They were pointing to a greater future reality. And this leads us to our third question. Who? Whose blood? Who were we redeemed by? Who is all of this pointing to? Peter answers in verse 19. It's the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It was the blood of Christ. The Passover, as well as the whole Levitical system with all of its bloody sacrifices, was, point, was intended to point towards the greater fulfillment in Christ. At the cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God that was re reserved for us as God's righteous anger was averted onto his own precious and beloved Son. At the cross, Jesus took on the punishment we deserved for our futile ways for not living according to the purpose for which we were made. And he could do that. He could be our substitute because notice in verse 19, he's described like a Passover lamb, like a lamb without blemish or spot. That's what made his blood precious enough to redeem us. He lived the most unblemished and spotless life that anyone could possibly live because he was sinless. Listen, if, if Jesus had sinned even once, he couldn't redeem anyone. He would have to pay for his own life. That's the entire idea behind needing a sinless substitute. And that's why only Jesus can be our Savior, because only he was perfect, and only he met the righteous requirements to glorify God. And so that's why at the cross, only Jesus can purchase us by his blood. It was his life for ours. And so I hope you see the incredible demonstration of God's love for us through all of this. The fact that God could have just so easily hit the restart button with just a single word. He could have just hit restart. He, he could have just left us in our futility and we would have had to endure the righteous judgment that we rightly deserved. He didn't have to do anything. And yet he did. And not only that, but he did the most drastic thing possible. The greatest work in the history of the world just to buy us back. I'm reminded of a quote by the Puritan Thomas Watson who said, Great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It cost more to redeem us than to make us. In the one there was but the speaking of the word, in the other there was the shedding of blood. You see, God loved us so much that he created us so we could partake in the infinite joy of knowing him and being in right relationship with him. But we rebelled in our sin. And yet God didn't just abandon us. He continued to love us so much that he sent us the object of his eternal and infinite joy, glory, delight. He, he sent us that which was most precious to him. He sent us his only son to live a perfect, sinless life 
for the purpose of suffering the most evil, wicked, murder imaginable, so that by his blood we could be set free. He let the most precious person in the world suffer unspeakable anguish at the wrath of his own hand just so he could buy us back. He could have spared him, and yet he didn't. And don't think that it was because of anything that we did. It was in spite of us. Remember, we were useless to him. Just like Israel was told in Deuteronomy 7 that it was not because they did anything or that they were numerous or anything about them that God redeemed them. And so it is for us. It's not because of who we are or what we've done or anything about us at all that is the reason that God redeems us. He redeems us because he loves us and has made a covenant and will keep his covenant so that we might repent and we might know him and, and love him and belong to him and enjoy him forever. What an immense love and privilege that we are now twice his. Not only did he make us, but then he bought us. And so precious is, is really the perfect way to describe Christ's blood. It's precious to the Father because it's the blood of his only Son. But it's also the only payment that will satisfy him. It's precious to Christ because it represents his very own life that he gave for us. It's precious to believers because it is, it is the only acceptable price of redemption and it has infinite power to save. And if you are not a believer, this precious blood is the only thing that can free you from a life of futility, a life without meaning, and an eternity separated from a good and loving God. And this brings me to our last question. Why? So what? Why were we redeemed? And this is hopefully where we can pull all of these threads together and, and kind of see why redemption is so important. So we started this study by looking at what our lives were like before redemption. How our lives were once futile and how we try to find meaning and purpose in this world apart from the living God. We, we live for ourselves pursuing all the fleeting pleasures of this world, chasing after things that, that in the end, those things would only leave us empty. Things like, Wealth, knowledge, careers, education, legacies. We lived as though this life was all that there was. And because of that, nothing we did could ever glorify God. And so we couldn't do what we were designed for. Our lives lost their meaning and their purpose. And Peter's saying, you know this, right? Verse 18 starts with knowing. You know this is how you once lived. You know that at one point your life was empty without meaning or purpose because you were enslaved to sin. And you might not have known it then, but that is a terrifying reality because there is in fact a God who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. But now, that very same God has redeemed you by the blood of his very own son. So that now you can be freed from futility and you can live your life with meaning and purpose. You know this. So what do you do with that? Why were we redeemed? Peter sums it up in the second part of verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
throughout your time here on earth, conduct yourselves with fear. That's why we were redeemed. All of our life is summed up in this word fear. Specifically, we must fear God. That is the the controlling, driving, orienting force that allows you to live your life with meaning and purpose. And so I think we've got to ask the question, what does it mean to fear God? Fear is used all throughout the Bible, and it's a word that describes our attitude towards God. It's the reality that will allow you to live a life of meaning and purpose, so we have to know what it means. And I don't know about you, but I've heard countless amount of times that the word fear, it just means reverence or honor. It means just reverence or honor. And I understand why people say that, and that can be a helpful synonym to use, but I would caution us to, uh, to, to immediately substitute a more comfortable word for a less comfortable one. Over and over and over, the Bible uses the word fear to describe the relationship that God wants with his people. The relationship that God wants with you and with me is one of fear. If Peter had meant just reverence or honor, I mean, look at the very next chapter. In 1 Peter 2.17, he says, honor or revere everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. It's not that Peter had a limited vocabulary or, or, or that he didn't really know what he was talking about. He, he's clearly making a distinction between fear and reverence right there. He meant fear. Now, there are also some people who, even in the context of this passage, I, I've heard some people say, well, you should fear God because he might send you to hell. You should fear God because of his judgment. And while judgment is something that is fearful, I, didn't, I don't think that's the type of attitude that Christians should have. We believe that we've already escaped judgment. That, that through the work of Christ, we have nothing to fear in that sense because there is no condemnation. And so if we trust in Christ, there's no use in fearing what we've already been saved from. So what does Peter mean when he says to fear God? I think it's helpful just to ask the question, what is fear at its core? It's one of the most powerful emotional experiences that any human being can have. My youth pastor, he, he used to have a really provocative way of I- illustrating it this way. Think of the last time you were most afraid in your entire life. For me, it was a time when I was in college. Um, Some friends and I, we wanted to go see Niagara Falls and spend a couple days in Toronto. I was maybe 19, 20 years old. And like the responsible college students we were, we decided to go during fall break instead of studying for our exams. Well, on the drive back, we were going around 70 on the highway somewhere in Maryland, and it started to rain. And we came up on this bend in the road and just hit a patch of water, and all of a sudden, we were hydroplaning. My friend, he lost complete control of the wheel, and we made a sharp right, and boom. We slammed into the guardrail. The airbags failed to deploy. We made a 360 spin in the middle of the highway and miraculously landed on the side of the road. Not a second later, a truck came careening down the highway, just barely missing the car. Now, in those five or six seconds, 
I am the most afraid I have ever been in my entire life. And there's nothing in the world that matters in that moment except the object of my fear. Nothing else mattered. Thoughts of anything else, any other concerns, anxieties, worries, hopes, fears, dreams, everything is driven out and I'm consumed by that one object. I didn't care about the test I was going to have to take the next day. I didn't care about if I was going to graduate. I didn't care about my internship or what my career was going to look like or if I was eventually going to have the family and life that I always dreamed of. I didn't care about any of those things because that's what fear does. And so think about the time that you were most afraid in your life. Think of that moment. I can guarantee this, that in that moment, the object of your fear consumed you. It consumed you and controlled every thought in your mind. It pushed everything else out of your mind, didn't it? Your affections, your imaginations, your thoughts and priorities, every part of you was focused on the object of your fear. That thing gripped you and compelled you and you acted in response to it. If you cared about something, it's because the fear, the object of your fear, directed your actions and your thoughts towards that something. And that's the nature of fear. It's an all-consuming reality. And this is what it is to fear God. It is to see God as He is in His infinite glory, majesty, power, righteousness, holiness, purity, mercy, patience, compassion, and to be in awe such that you're consumed by Him, such that everything in your life is controlled and compelled and directed by the object of your fear, the living God Himself. You know, fear is just a way of summing up a right relationship with God. It's to be so consumed and in awe of who God is that He controls and compels every facet of your life. Because when you fear God, you have such a clear, glorious, transcendent view of God that is so overwhelming, it drives out sin. It drives out anxiety. It drives out pride. It drives out selfishness. And in view of this consuming, awe-inspiring God who consumes you with awe and wonder, you live a life of meaning and purpose that happens when you see God as He really is. I think of Isaiah when he sees God. The first thing he says is, I am a sinner. And he cries out, woe is me, I'm condemned. I'm undone because in light of God's holiness, I see my shortcomings. I see my sin. And God sends an angel to tell him that his sins are atoned for and washed away. And all Isaiah can do is still stand before God and say, I'm still in awe. I don't want to now say, oh great, my sins have been forgiven, so now I can just go and do them again and, and I won't get in trouble for it. He's still standing before God, who's now not only infinitely holy, but now infinitely merciful. And he's freed from sin and he's compelled to love this God and follow this God. So that when God says, I need someone to go speak to Israel, he says, send me. This is Paul. When he sees God's holiness, he's blinded. But then when he sees the mercy of God, his eyes are open and all he can say is, I'm compelled by the love of Christ. It controls me. It constrains me. And elsewhere, my life is not my own, for I was bought with a price. Therefore, I will glorify God. And this is even Peter, who when Peter realized he was in the presence of God himself, he fell down at Jesus' knees and cried out, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. 
And when Jesus called out to him, he left everything and followed him. And then he wrote this passage, having set the example himself. You see, all of these men, the thing that they had in common was that they saw that they were freed from slavery to sin, and they saw what God had done for them, and because of that, they're living to glorify God. They're living a life of meaning and purpose to know the God of this world. And when that is the guiding principle of your life and how you conduct yourself, then your life will be directed towards a life that matters. And when that happens, when you come to know this Jesus who paid the price of your redemption, who stood in our place on a cross where he endured the wrath that we rightly deserve for eternity, for, for our sins of ignoring and rejecting the God who made us, for our sins of living completely meaningless lives against the purpose for which we were made, Christ stands in our place and bears the wrath we deserved and, res and was resurrected from the grave and now stands through the gospel calling out to all people everywhere to come to him to, for forgiveness of their sins and to be brought to the God who made them and the God who loves them and the God who will give them purpose and meaning and fulfillment in their life now and forever. When you come to know this Jesus, Peter says in verse 8 that he fills your heart with joy inexpressible and full of glory and he orients your entire life. You see, the reason for living is a person. It's Jesus Christ. The reason for living is to know him, to rejoice in him, to fear him, to serve him, to suffer for him, to labor for him. And when your entire life is oriented around this person, Jesus Christ, everything you do in this, matter, in this life matters. Every moment of your life is infused with eternal significance. There's weight to every, every, every breath you take, every thought you think, every word you speak, every deed you do, everything you do matters. It's Jesus who reverses the futility of life by redeeming you from sin. That's the reason for living. It's to fear Jesus and conduct yourself in obedience to him and enjoy him forever. And so, practically speaking, I wonder what this means for you. As you look around where God has placed you in your life, as you see your, your family and your kids, your, your friends and your neighbors, your job or your retirement, even this church body, where, whatever the situation in your life, do you see all of these things as opportunities that you can seize for the sake of Jesus Christ? Are you consumed with such an awe and wonder of God that you are compelled to do everything for him? Now, I can't begin to apply this in every moment of every situation in every life, but I can say this. You have the full revelation of God's word in your lap. And we believe that all of it is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that we as Christians might be complete, equipped for every good work. God has not left us alone for us to have to guess what he, who he is and what's pleasing to him and how we can follow him. He's given us his very word so that we can know. And not only so, but he's given us his very own spirit. Just like what, what our catechism this morning said, to illuminate the word of, to our heart. 
so that as we delight in God's word and as we meditate on its truths day and night, as, as the word of God is just constantly running through our minds and we're wrestling with it, we're, we're learning about its doctrines, we're learning about redemption, we're preaching it to ourselves, we're praying over it, saying, saying, God, how can I apply this to my life well? God, what does this mean? God, help me to hope in your promises. God, remind me of your goodness. Help me to make this decision. And as we're applying scriptures to our heart and our lives and it's just saturating our mind, the Spirit causes us to be consumed with who God is and begins to shape the way that we think and feel and so act. So that now you can look at where God has placed you in your life. You can look at the life he has given you and you can conduct yourself for the sake of Jesus Christ and do everything for him. Because when you live in right relationship to God, ransomed from your bondage to sin, and you understand that my life is not my own, for I was bought with a price, then you're freed up to have joy and purpose and fulfillment in this life. And now, you want to live for him. You see, Peter is helping us see that there are really only two extremes in human life. There is utter futility, where there is meaning and purpose and joy in life with God, knowing that you have been ransomed from, with the blood of Christ. There is no middle path. There's futility and there's infinite joy. And what Peter is telling us is that the more you understand redemption, the more you will be able to live a life of joy. Not all slave stories ended like John Barry Machen's. There was a story of a freedman who worked as a shoemaker. And he worked and worked and worked to try to make enough money to buy the freedom of his wife. Well, once he had made enough money, he set foot to Virginia to purchase the freedom of his wife. But when he got there, he found out that his wife had been sold to a plantation in Louisiana. And so he walked all the way there. But when he finally found her, over the course of time and travel, he had no money with which to buy her freedom. And so he made a proposition to her owner. My life for hers. I will stay if you let her go. What a picture of what Christ does for us on the cross. And what a reason to know and love and glorify this God who loves you that much. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you that you are a gracious and loving God, and we thank you for the great work of redemption. We're so grateful that you sent Christ to die for our sins, and we pray that as we leave this place that your spirit would apply these truths to our hearts and that we would continue to reflect on the price that you paid for our sins. Um, we pray that we would dwell on the great love and mercy that you, you have for us and that we would be consumed in awe of you. We pray that this would increase our own love and desire and affections for Christ, and that we would live for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.